Hey, I'm Eric Nelson, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. There is nowhere to chain love to vows and ceremony. Out here, love burns through you like a fever. And when the devil comes to rip that love from you, there is no funeral with somber speeches that dull our senses and deaden our hearts. Out here, you turn toward the pain as it tears into you, and you let it. When you do, the devil gets bored. He seeks another soul to eat. And you get to live again. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode 6 of 1883, Boring the Devil. Or, maybe it should have been called, How Elsa Got Her Groove Back. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan, and it was directed by the show's director of photography, Ben Richardson. He's back to direct. He actually directed episode 2 of the series, Behind Us, A Cliff. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Yellowstone 1883 and 4-6's discussion and news group to discuss 1883 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. And if you missed it last week, we filled that 1883 void in your heart with a fantastic exclusive interview with Eric Nelson. Definitely recommend you go check it out if you haven't listened to it yet or listened to it again. Eric was great. It was a good way to, after the events of episode 5 to have that conversation and kind of say goodbye to Ennis. It made my heart feel better to hear that. He wouldn't have done it any differently, that Ennis died with a smile on his face, that he knew he protected Elsa in the end, and, you know, that that really made me feel happy. Just a reminder, we assume you've watched the episode. This is not a recap. We're not going to go step-by-step step in what happened. So if you haven't watched it yet, pause the podcast now, go watch, and then come back and listen to us. You know, we just mentioned Eric Nelson having left the show now as Ennis. It was a little jarring then in tonight's opening credits. We had a new character sliding into where Eric's credits were. Noah LaGrosse joins the cast tonight in the opening credits. He is introduced to us playing Colton. Is it too soon, Mike? I don't know. It was, you know, I expected it to happen, right? You're not going to keep someone in the credits who's not on the show anymore. But it was also kind of like, I don't know. Like, have, like, a little placeholder for him or something. <laughs> Maybe put, like, armbands, black armbands on all the characters in the opening credits or something. This was definitely a little whiplash for me. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, it makes sense that we need to replace him in the actual show in terms of, you know, having another cowboy. Because clearly we needed all hands on deck all the time. But to see him in the credits, I was like, oh, it's, so, it's too quick for me. But you know what? We're already on episode six, and we only have a couple more to go, so no time to sit around mourning when we're when we're on the journey here, Mike. I mean, not to, to quote Elsa, but, I mean, to quote Elsa, we have to do this. Where are you going now? Back to work. Even though when she says that in the beginning of the episode, she's really not ready to get back to work. But she is by the end of the episode, I think. She's definitely, you know, she's 
this is the episode of grief and mourning. It is, and healing, and, and kind of coming around to realizing what's the best way to memorialize Ennis. And I think that, you know, they had some really fresh ideas, as far as I'm concerned, on how do you honor the dead, and what does it look like to carry on? Uh, I think you're talking specifically about Shay, and he relays the story of the Apache scout to him about souls and why it hurts so much when someone dies, and and why he keeps living, which again, just filling in more of that backstory on Che of this guy seems so over life and yet continues to suck breath as he says it. Let's listen to his clip. An Apache scout told me once when you love somebody a trade souls with they get a piece of yours and you get a piece of theirs. when your love dies a little piece of you dies with him that's why it hurts so bad but that little piece of him is still inside you and he can use your eyes to see the world so I'm taking my wife to the ocean. And I'm going to sit on the beach and let her see it. That was her dream. And then I'm going to see her. That's my dream. That was really touching and a completely different way to think about when someone passes, how can you carry on and have them be a part of your life. I always tell my kids, like, I'm in your heart, and so I can't ever really be gone. But it brings it to a new level to think of the idea that they could continue to live life and somehow I could see through their eyes. Like, that's so magical. And I do think really makes it feel like someone never really dies, you know, so long as someone still is, like, loving you and you have a little bit in their heart. You know, you get to continue to adventure around the world. And I think that's pretty amazing. It's kind of like a related to the Coco theory of memory right as long as someone remembers you you continue to exist in in the afterlife and you continue to exist really out in the world as long as a part of your soul remains in your love or in your soulmate you continue to experience the world you just get to experience it now through their eyes but just hearing shay talk about how he's going to take his wife to the beach because she always wanted to see it and that was her dream and I want to see her, and that's my dream. And Sam Elliott just got, he just kills this role. <laughs> I mean, even the most minor things, just a little bit of sincerity from him is like a year's worth of, of heart-pounding sincerity from anyone else. It also, I think, encourages Elsa to be able to move on with this, like, dignity. If you think of it as if your dead loved one is looking through your eyes, then you have some sort of responsibility to give them something to see to something to experience. You can't just lay in your bed and cry all day. Your passed on loved one is living through you and you want to continue to let them live. So you have to get out there. You've got to get back to work. You know, I'm glad you said that because I had been struggling. I knew it was significant, but I was actually struggling about the meaning of this clip she has at the end when she wakes up and she's laying in the field. And, you know, when you and I watched this, we both joked that our, our biggest concern was that she hadn't put a lasso around her so a snake was going to come bite her. <laughs> and if the show has taught us anything, is you don't put your body down into the grass. But she, she let's listen to this clip because I think it's 
it's important in what, what you just said, what it means. I laid in the grass. Closed my eyes. And I saw him. Laughed at his goofy hair. Felt the electricity of his touch. I laid in the grass. And I loved him. Then I opened my eyes. And I could see color again. You know, so many people walk around the world, or, you know, walk around in 1883 and in today's world. They, they don't see the beauty of life. They don't see the beauty of the world around them, right? They only see the world in sepia tones or black and whites, you know, very, very dreary. So so why is it important that she she get to see color again? Why her eyes, you know, are healed? And that this is continuing that metaphor from the end of episode five when she said that this man we didn't know killed him and made me colorblind. If you're going to take Shay's theory on, she owes something to Ennis to give something to see and this responsibility that, you know, she needs to live a full life so that Ennis can see through her, not only for herself, but for her love, then having color back in your world makes a lot of sense. It's a necessity because then you're not living a full life if you don't. I also think it can answer the question that I think a lot of our viewers will have about, is this too fast? Did she heal too quickly? It is your honoring of your of your loved one that you continue on, that you get back to work, that you give them something to see. That is the way to heal and, and that it's a process of healing. I don't think it feels as fast because we said that at the beginning, like, is this whiplash to suddenly have Colton be on the scene? It doesn't feel so fast to have her joking around with Colton if you think that Ennis would be grinning at the sassiness that she's like pouring out. It doesn't feel so bad because it feels like he'd be laughing and like going along with it and thinking she was so cute and funny. Well, and she playing the Ennis role, right? She's echoing by, by doing the YouTube Purdy for me routine. She's echoing Ennis's meet cute with her. She's Ennis now, right? She she's she she is not only showing him a life through her eyes, but she's assuming his role and, and she's the dominant. I mean, she's the second cowboy in charge now or cowgirl in charge now. You know, she's moved up and getting back to work doesn't mean you're over your grief. I like the fact that Colton clearly, you know, makes a play for her, seems to only really take the job when he when he spies her across the field. Right. He's 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 lining up all of his reasons for not taking the signing on to the drive, sees her across the field. And he's like, oh, how much a month? A hundred. Yeah. OK, I'll, I'll do it. Hits on her immediately. And then she shuts him down. You know, what do I call you? You don't. He goes to Wade and says, you know, they weren't just paired up. She, she's a, like a damn widow in mourning. And Wade says she is a widow in mourning. You know, Wade gets it. Wade tries to, you know, advise him not to do it. I'm glad they had that scene because you need to get Colton hitting on her that way out of the way early so that he can maybe now respect her as a cowgirl, not be gross hitting on her constantly. Which, listen, it's a show. It may still happen. They may still pair them together. And I think viewers need to prepare themselves for that that is a thing that may happen but at least right now it seems they've established a boundary 
where he is going to respect her as a widow, not a fresh piece of meat to, to hit on and try and make a run at. So to back up to your comment about the meat cute, I took it like Ennis was living vicariously through her in that she was saying his lines and and so then it was like Ennis was there in in this exchange, which was really heartwarming for me. I was okay with it. Also, I, I think that by changing it around to her having the the dominant role, there was something like it was only going to go as far as she was comfortable. It felt like she was going to lead the conversation. And so in that case, I guess I also felt like my guard came down because it didn't feel like Colton was going to need to come at her with this constant barrage of hitting on her. It felt like she was going to be able to hang on to to the reins and, and control it a little bit. It's inevitable that there's going to be a lot of He's not my Ennis, you know, that the show is just trying to fill that hole. He's funny. Clearly, he's going to be the comedy relief cowboy now that Ennis is gone. He's immediately attracted to Elsa. He's a capable cowboy, same as Ennis, right? He establishes right away he knows Wade. He knew Wade before Wade was paired with Ennis, right? He mentions an old partner, Swenson. I worry that he's going to immediately get shuffled into Ennis Light or Ennis 2.0. Is that the one problem I'd say about introducing him so fast? Well, and the big thing that he is very different about is where we had Ennis having that really sincere sort of innocence where he was like, you know, I sort of know what I'm doing. I kind of have experience. Colton is a womanizer type where he was like, oh, they all want me. He's been with a lot of people. It does feel like next steps. Ennis does feel like a first boyfriend and Colton feels like who you graduate to. There is a toughness about Colton, I think, immediately comes through. He seems much more like a rugged Dutton-esque cowboy than maybe Ennis versus like a, a sings you pretty songs around a campfire cowboy. Well, so then we have to address, you know, the, the gigantic elephant in the room here we had been thinking was Ennis the father of a baby moving forward and uh, we have confirmation that no you know it seems that Elsa is not pregnant and so what does this mean does this mean that Colton steps into that is it Colton Spencer we don't know do you have any ideas on that no other than I, I I mean I think at least I I mean I don't know how you felt about it but I was starting to feel real good about our theory because it's just such good tragedy it's like Shakespearean tragedy that they're torn apart just as they create this new life together so I was really invested in the she's now going to be pregnant with Ennis's baby theory so it was kind of blown up right away at the beginning of this episode you know maybe now Colton makes the most sense I mean the lineage math works so much better if Spencer the younger of the two boys from the Yellowstone flashback mm -hmm. is her kid mm -hmm. it really doesn't work it's always it's straining if it's not if it's really a Margaret and James kid uh is that youngest one so I'm still a hot in the theory that she's going to have a baby is it gonna be Colton I don't know we have to see he definitely struck me much more rugged much more of a rip type than a walker type if you okay. are, if you're, yeah. if you're using Yellowstone, modern Yellowstone cowboys. Before we move off of Shay and grief and mourning and Elsa, this is the first time we really ever got to see Shay and Elsa interact. And one thing Shay started off by saying that really I appreciated was, you know, I know how you feel. You know, a lot of people are going to say that to you, but I actually know. It's true! Because I think people don't know what to say when you're in mourning, when you're feeling grief. I feel like the, the knee-jerk response is always like, oh, I know how you feel. I lost a goldfish or something. You're like, yeah. no, you don't know how I feel, you know? So I like that he approached her that way. And that she then thanks him at the end. She says, you're the only one who talked to me. 
And then they had this really kind of sweet grandpa, granddaughter kind of moment. What was your take on the whole Shay Elsa relationship this episode? I felt proud of him for respecting and acknowledging the depth of the relationship between Ennis and Elsa. And it could have been just as plausible that he would have bristled at the idea that he was married and had a child who was older even. She wasn't like two years old. Um, with a woman and had a whole life with her and then she passed versus what Ennis and Elsa had um, which was just you know like a flash in the pan comparatively but he respected it and still understood that that was love and that was as deep a love as he experienced so there was a lot of mutual respect there a lot of understanding of what it felt like for loss you know I definitely think Shay got that Dutton in his corner from here on out What did you think about her opening monologue about pain? This opening clip reminded me of her musings on kissing and how the idea of kissing a stranger, when you think about it, really doesn't make any sense, but yet we do it anyway. And so she's now musing on what is the utility of pain and suffering? What does it get us? Death is everywhere. It follows us like a stray dog waiting to devour us like scraps. The pain it causes is so acute, so complete. It's hard to understand how it benefits us as a species. What purpose does pain serve? I understand desire. And fear. And love. And how they protect us and better our lives and bring new life. But grief. If I weren't so consumed by it, it would baffle me. There's a lot in that clip, but I think the idea of I'm living yet I'm shattered. uh, And the idea of what what purpose does pain and suffering serve? Is it is it simply just to remind us of that we're alive, right? That the the biggest reminder that you are breathing is that you feel pain. Oof, that's so hard. I wrestle with that quite a bit. I do think that through having struggles and obstacles and pain, that's how you gain a sense of perspective and grit. You have the ability to have experienced something terrible and still make it through the other side. And so I think that that gives you that sense that I could make it, I can do it. There is this whole other element of gratitude and appreciation for what you have. Once you've gone through something so terrible, it absolutely would make you have a whole different appreciation for when something wonderful comes into your life, which I don't think you can appreciate unless you have that teeter-totter balancing of remember when it was really much worse than this it's without sadness you wouldn't know what happiness is or the fact that you had a soul of your soulmate inside of you without pain and suffering when they're gone you don't feel them inside you when you're in love and and everything is going well because you're just riding on endorphins and oxytocin Mm. you know but when they're gone is when you're reminded of it because the the pain kicks in to tell you that you're now missing something i always had this experience because i have uh preemie twin girls and they were in the hospital for so long and it was so life and death for so many months six months in the hospital when i would go out to someplace like walmart or something and i would see someone yelling at their kid 
I would have like an overwhelming need to be like, please just appreciate that you have healthy children that are here. Like, please stop getting stuck on the little things and just see the big picture that you're so lucky, you know, to have this little one. You know, I, it's hard to feel like the necessity of pain. It's hard to feel like, like, oh, yes, it's a good idea to have pain in the world. But I do understand. Right, no one is like, oh, thank God for my pain. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, it's like, I, you can use pain in a good way to actually have you, you know, form these these bigger, better ideas about the world. If you have that, you just don't know how bad it could be. Then you you gain this this really great depth of wisdom. I feel like you can take things in beyond like with a grain of salt. You can you can actually find the lessons in life and be grateful for them. Maybe a warning here is uh, that should have been a warning to James and to Margaret is that. You know, she's walking around in Ennis's coach. She's clearly in mourning and grief here. But when she's sitting at his grave, which I think we should clear up, it seems like they were getting ready to leave from where they were last week, but hadn't actually yet left. So when we see her in the wagon crying and wailing silently, you know, on the soundtrack, I don't know that they're actually going anywhere. I think she's just laying in there crying and, and carrying on. So obviously she doesn't look all the way back to Ennis' <laughs> right, grave, right. nor is it a random's grave. I think they just haven't actually gotten on their way yet. I think they're just breaking camp to get going. But she's sitting there in Ennis' coat, which kind of makes sense, right? We always oh, wear it. Yeah. But she's sitting there caressing a pistol. The caressing a pistol is, <laughs> is it seems to me to be a red flag that maybe we shouldn't put her around people she doesn't know. Maybe don't take her into Doan's Crossing, you know, this new settlement filled with humans after you haven't seen anyone now for a couple of weeks other than your camp, your group. She wasn't looking for nothing, but trouble found her anyway. What did you think of the fun in man? Where we do fun in? And her pulling the pistol and Margaret's reaction. Uh, not, well, Margaret's, but James's reaction to that. Because he kind of, you know, he, what's wrong with you? He takes her gun. He's kind of mad at her. They're not really listening to her side of the story or even taking that into account necessarily. Well, it's very 1883 versus 2022. I mean, I would like to think that these days, if you were to try to say, well, here's what happened. I hope someone would listen a little bit more and that someone else would say it's not funny. So knock it off to that guy. But, you know, these were the times and you're right. She came in so raw to that situation. Really, any interaction was likely to be rough and tumble. Chances are that she was not going to get all this like high tea manners, you know, type responses to her, whether or not it had anything to do with hitting on her or anything, just anyone she talked to. It could have been a shopkeeper, could have been anybody was probably going to be a little rough around the edges and kind of piss her off. I understood it on, on one hand, like when she actually went into town, I was thinking like, oh, well, this is a good idea. She should do some retail therapy, you know, feel a little better. Maybe find something pretty or, or find something that reminds her of Venice. Girlfriend or... needs a new hat in the worst way. I'm that, just her saying... bonnet hat is full of holes. She needs at least a cowboy hat. Why did they get that for her? Maybe like a distraction, right? You is know, that's like... making hats in Dones, you think, in uh, 1883? I don't, I don't know. know. I didn't see any in that in the shop, but... I can see where having a distraction, like redirecting her energy into going there, seemed like a good idea. Should she be carrying a gun and all that? Probably not. She's awfully raw for for what's been going on in her life. So, yeah, I mean, the fun and guy, he deserves a punch in the mouth. He doesn't deserve to be killed necessarily, (laughs) but he deserves a punch in the face. Let's listen to this clip because I think Elsa, when she does talk to her father, 
uh, later on and night has fallen, he rides up to her to, to continue the conversation or maybe actually have a real conversation with her for the first time in this episode about what she's going through. She speaks to a point that men, I don't think, can really fully appreciate. Beyond the line of, you know, I wasn't looking for nothing and it still found me. I, I know that that was true in 1883 and I know that's true for many women in 2022. But you have this great line that she gives. You didn't see the way he was looking at me. Wouldn't matter if you did. Men don't know how to read that look. Only know how to give it. I wish she had taken it one step further. They kind of dance around the situation. You know, she had this situation at the at the hotel with the guy attacking her in the room. I think I would have looked at my dad and said, do you think I was looking for trouble then when I was sleeping in my bed? Stop blaming me for, for men and their choices. I could see them taking it at least two sentences further. It was an opportunity to actually say something for 2022's watchers, you know, of, of like, do you find yourself, you know, blaming, <laughs> blaming women, right. you know, like, well, do you think well, that victim Elsa... blaming is, is, has, feels like it's been always prevalent and remains sadly so, especially as it relates to women being a victim in 2022. And it was a huge letdown then for her to say, of course you don't dad know what that look means or how to read that look like. But isn't like, that a good starting point, though? Ugh. But isn't that a good starting point, though? That's, that's something that Margaret has probably never said to James. Or maybe something he hasn't actually had to deal with now, because now, for the first time, his daughter becoming a woman and attracting men in, in mass, maybe for the first time. It's something that he maybe has to hear and that maybe he'll be aware of going forward now. I'll be interested to see if they touch back on it. Maybe you're right. Maybe we just waited in. We just put our little toe in and we'll see what happens next. But, you know, I think it definitely could have gone a sentence or two further. I, I think she could have hearkened back to to the attack. I right. think she could have said, you trust me over that man? Like, you know, who do you trust? You know, that this was a was a real situation and I handled it correctly. I'd be real quick to go back to the what happened to treating me like an adult and that you can't just do that when it suits you. Why all of a sudden are you trying to act like you know you know better than me? Like, which is a dad? Like, do you trust me and I make good decisions and you can you know have make sure I have your back? Or now you're gonna like give me heat on this? Now was she in the wrong to pull a gun? Yes, she was wrong to and, pull a gun. Right, and again, and, and as a dad, I think I would only say in response to that when he said, "If you pull a gun, you better prepared be prepared to use it." And she, and I filled in the blank as she was saying it, said to him, I fully intended to use the gun. As a dad and as a as someone responsible ultimately for her safety and his family's safety, I appreciated then at that point taking a step back and being like, whoa. You know, it's not really about being an adult. This is about being someone who is not thinking correctly at this point because he has to believe her, and I think he does believe her that she was going to use it. It wasn't that she pulled an idle threat of just pulling a gun I think James is saying, well, this is more serious than just you acting impulsively. Acting impulsively, then doing something that could have, I mean, would have gotten her killed. I think it's dicey, and I, I want to be real thoughtful about how we approach this guy, because, you know, we don't know where that situation could have gone. 100%. It only didn't go anywhere because Elsa made sure that she was being safe, and had she sort of, like, 
just trusted him or something. I know that sounds like super silly, but like it would have gone to a really bad place. And so I kind of take it like James is saying, this is not a, a, a punishable offense, what he's doing. The feel for me, and I feel like other watchers are going to feel this way, is like, yeah, but you don't know what that leads to. Like, that's right. just like the tip of the iceberg of where that goes. And for God's sake, in this show, just a couple episodes ago, I had to literally get like smacked across the face by a man who started like that. Right. So kind of don't tell me where that conversation goes. I know exactly what that looks like. Right. And you shot him. And remember, that situation ended with him being dead at your gun dead. Like, right? right. No, I mean, of course, it did go further. It went into an attack. But this is, but she's up on the horse. You know, he's standing down below. Like, there's, it's a different dynamic. But I can see where she's like a little distraught a little dismayed to look at her own father and be like really you don't understand where comments from a man can lead like why are you gonna act like that dad you know i thought james's response here was interesting interesting from a character development standpoint because remember at the end of the episode when shay comes up to her and says looks like you got your groove back still uh, you know <laughs> and uh and she says you're the only one who talked to me about it and and meaning you're the only one who talked to me about ennis and and my grief and and what i lost here They've lost Claire. They lost Mary yeah. Abel. That's that's James and Margaret's sister or sister-in-law. That's their niece. That's her. They have lost family on this trip already and didn't approach her and, and give some kind of... They didn't even apparently say, I know how you feel, which they've lost family on this trip, someone that they presumably loved to some extent. When James comes up to here, I was expecting him to have the, I know you loved him, honey, you know, all that kind of, but he doesn't. He actually approaches the other part of what happened at the end of episode five, the, her killing Ennis's murderer. Mm. And he approaches it from there. He He's zooming in on not her grief about the loss of Ennis, but the guilt that she feels or that he thinks that she may be feeling over having killed that man and opens up about the civil war, which we know from a couple episodes ago in her voiceover, you know, the, her birthday episode, he doesn't talk about the war, you know, he doesn't ever talk about the war, but now he's opening up about not only the experience of war, but the fact that he killed a young boy because the young boy was the flag bearer. And in war, you kill the flag bearer first. The fact that he ended up killing so many men, he couldn't even remember what that boy's face looked like anymore after it had been burnished in his brain, such as the cost of war and, and the hate you begin to feel towards men. And then he goes into this whole hate-filled speech, which is what I want to play here. That man you shot was already dead. Whether we hanged him or he bled out, it's time when this earth was done. You did not kill him. Understand? Meanest thing you can do to yourself is hate somebody else. I know what it feels like to hate the world. You don't want to feel it, honey. Be sad. Miss him. Cry yourself blind. You leave hating at me. Beyond just the guilt that, that you're speaking of, I think there's this that anger, that simmering under the surface anger, being so quick to pull the gun now. Once you cross that line, 
that first one in a way that that kind of you know dehumanizes you which was a whole conversation he had with john um about keeping your humanity so there was something about like this is your first one don't like let this open the floodgates where now all of a sudden you pull your gun you know any old time you know that's what i was getting uh, out of it was that she's just being too quick on the trigger like literally now right almost be maybe because she may see herself as this killer as this natural born killer now and so that's why he's making and emphasizing the point that that man was already dead by his actions you didn't actually kill him it's like lock the floodgates like right it's, like, it's, don't it's like, feel like you opened it right already. He, he, right I mean, if it was a modern psychology class he would be essentially telling her to reframe the memory Right. Don't think of it as you killed that man so that pulling a gun is so easy. You didn't kill him. His actions by killing Ennis, you know, determined his fate. He was a dead man walking already. His experience with war and killing came through to her here. And so that he chose to focus on that aspect, the anger and guilt aspect, versus the fact that maybe she pulled the gun because she was raw and mourning. He saw she pulled the gun on fun and man because she had this guilt slash anger and now is killing shouldn't be so easy. You shouldn't, it it should take more to pull out your gun and be prepared to use it than you demonstrated in the, at, at Don's. Which is a completely fair lesson for James to teach Elsa. Like once you pull the trigger once does not mean it should be easier to do over and over again. And that unfortunately during war, there becomes that faceless nameless aspect to it to where you can't even remember who the people are that you killed you know i wondered about the conversational point about that guy was already dead i don't know why that bothered me somehow it did i mean i understand it was to say that that you didn't actually take his life because he was going to be dead one way or another but i don't know why i took it so kind of like undercutting like you didn't avenge his death he was already dead kind of feeling like somehow it made me feel like it took something away from her actions and i understand that it was to to again like get her off of this track of like anytime i'm feeling like i've been wronged i should pull my gun out but it also by doing that though it takes away her agency kind of right like am i wrong to feel like that weird little twinge of like why are you gonna act like i wasn't that that wasn't like a big courageous move on my part well it's interesting because to your point he says in part of there and i thought it was an interesting clip because he says among the things that are okay for her to do is cry herself blind, which is interesting because you have the whole color clip and she Mm. woke up and I could see color again. But remember the end of episode five, this man who, you know, I chose to love him. He chose to love me back. And then this man that we did not know chose to kill him and made me blind. She says as part of that clip, maybe by killing him, I'll be able to see again. So to her killing him, avenging Ennis's death, the way she saw it, was a, was an attempt to regain sight, re, met this metaphorical sight, to regain her color. It was the first way she tried to do it. So you're right, in a way, by James saying that to her, would he have said that to Ennis if it had been Elsa who had been killed? Would he have said that to a man? You can cry yourself blind, but you didn't kill that man. There's a part there. There, there it, may, it strikes me as if it's a double standard of if it's a guy he's talking to, you avenged his your lover's death kind of thing. You you did you're, a massive you're a brave big man. You're right? a brave big man, right? You you took into you took into his your hands justice and vigilante justice. Now James has already had he has complicated feelings with justice and killing. Right when the bandits that they hunted down 
the ones who killed Claire and, and did the raid they hunted down with Billy Bob, Marshal Billy Bob, and shot them dead. There was a whole, you know, Margaret, remember Margaret had unease about those men being shot dead for what they did, considering that maybe they weren't the ones who actually instigated it. And he said something, this is a paraphrase, but essentially it was, this is nothing to do about justice. For him, going into Fort Worth and killing those men was about safety, that they were going to chase them, they were going to exact revenge, they needed to nip it in the bud now. Now, because it's his daughter, he's having a little bit of a different tune. Why isn't it a matter of safety now? She did what any of the men would have done. She did what James did to the fat man in the hotel room. Right. Right? They could have waited for Billy, Marshal Billy Bob to come get that man for attempting to rape Elsa, but they didn't. He shot, shot him dead. Elsa did the same thing. Right. Like, what if someone turned around to James and said, you didn't, you didn't need to shoot that man. We right. would have hung him in the street. He was already dead, He James. was already dead. Right. Like, wouldn't that kind of, like, I don't, even just saying that, you didn't need to do that, James. It doesn't, doesn't that sound like I'm belittling him? Yeah. Just that sentence. And so then when he says it back to Elsa, I mean, I know on one hand, it's supposed to be like washing her hands. Like, right. it's okay. You don't have blood on your hands. That guy was going to be dead anyway. Just do... Your thing you're not and a just killer. cry. Be, right, right. You're, he's, he's saying, don't be a killer. You haven't killed anyone yet. Your, your, your record is still clean. You, were, you don't have a, a mark of death because killing someone changes you. Like, it doesn't really count. It does diminish her actions and her taking what I think was maybe not premeditated, but it was definitely a rational thought in her mind. I'll even add on top of that. That he's wrong. She did kill someone. It was her finger on the trigger that ended up killing that man. So, yes, in an existential, philosophical way, justice would have been served by someone else at that camp. The, the other men would have hung him. They would have shot him, whatever. But did she physically take a life? Yes, she did. Why are you downplaying that? You know, there's something about downplaying it that feels like instructing her not to trust her own feelings mm. instructing her that like you know that feeling you have like you just killed someone you didn't that didn't happen it you weren't there you didn't kill him he was dead like what are you doing i did kill someone i did pull a trigger i mean what i, I hear you on the reframing but there's reframing and then there's like wait a minute <laughs> but <laughs> you know i think i mean the answer is maybe he didn't handle it right and probably didn't handle it right and probably is maybe doing her a disservice emotionally you know and her feelings wise about how to process it but also he's a dad yes and she's his oldest and his daughter and he just wants her to be okay and not become what he sees himself right there is a conversation with him and margaret you don't forgive me i don't forgive me right he's carrying a lot of guilt himself about how this whole situation played out remember it was him it was his plan and wade's and shay and thomas's that ultimately you know chased down the bandits in that roundabout way that led to ennis getting killed had they done it faster had they not had stormtrooper aim you know pew pew, mm. you know and 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 that plan had come off better maybe this entire endeavor i mean that's a big theme a big theme of this episode is this is guilt, right? And it's maybe James's own guilt at this situation that he's trying to deal with that he's putting upon his daughter, right? I mean, just bringing up the Civil War story and that flag bearer, he, I'm sure he's probably never even told Margaret that story. And here he is opening up to his daughter about it. So I think James is also dealing with his own guilt and maybe projecting on to Elsa or saying the words to Elsa that he wishes maybe would someone could say to him to process it. 
you ever hear a story, someone comes up and tells you something or gives you some kind of wisdom that has nothing really to do with your situation. But when you think about it, it's really them just talking to themselves and using you as kind of the guide. That may be it. That may be no more than what it is, that he's just trying to talk to himself and assuage his own guilt that he's carrying around. And I'm willing to say, I mean, he he is a flawed character, as all of them are. And he is going to have moments with his daughter that are not pristine. The typical viewer is going to watch this once, take it for what it is, and move on. For us, because we watch it multiple times and we take notes and we really think about what the patterns are of these conversations, that's when I'm like digging in deeper. And I'm like, what exactly are you doing here? And how mainly what I care about is how is this going to impact Elsa? You know, did this create healing? Maybe. And so in that case, maybe that's this is how she does move on. Maybe he's part of that healing process. Will it come back to bite her? Will at some point, will it come back and be like, I, I said you didn't kill anybody, but really, you know, like right. really she does have the killer spirit in her now. Right. I mean, we know from the opening scene of the first episode that at some point she she will reach a point where she doesn't fear pulling a gun and shooting it. I mean, she's walking towards those attackers in that opening scene, you know, yelling and shooting. The lasting effects of James's conversation seems to not have had as much of an impact as maybe Shay's words and her own processing it. Because you get the end clip here, which is really the end of the process, right? This whole episode, again, is about grief and mourning and then moving on. And so a lot of the clips and conversations of her journaling, of voiceovers, and her conversations with Shay were were dealing with the emotions of the grief and the mourning. But then you have her, let's board the devil so we can live again end monologue. We were no longer under the cloud of civilization. Only sky above us now. No more walking over bridges. Out here, we swim horseback through rivers. There is nowhere to chain love to vows and ceremony. Out here, love burns through you like a fever. And when the devil comes to rip that love from you, there is no funeral with somber speeches that dull our senses and deaden our hearts. Out here, you turn toward the pain as it tears into you, and you let it. When you do, the devil gets bored. He seeks another soul to eat. And you get to live again. I think that's a very wise way to look at it. If you face your pain and you really feel it, instead of hiding it behind ceremonies. And... Leaning into it. Leaning into it yeah. is a really evocative phrase. So many problems and, and adversity in life, leaning into it, turning into it, and not turning away from it is the best way through it. And I think that that's a great lesson for her to learn. And again, how she reaches this healing point at the end of this episode, which again, I still think is going to come really fast for a lot of people who are watching the show, I think that they're going to watch this and be like, good God, you know, by the end, she's she's teasing around with another man. Like, how could this possibly be? But if you listen to all the words, if you rewatch it and you really listen to the bits of advice and you think about the fact that she is taking that all in and she is processing it all, I think you can get there with Elsa faster than, than what it would first appear. Right. And, and I think it's also, un, I think it's too quick on the trigger <laughs> To, to employ a, a you know an image from this episode to you know to to assume that she's not 
continuing to mourn and grieve and processing those feelings. But you do have to. This is not a place where you can lounge around. There's been so much death. If everyone just laid around until you had fully processed your mourning and your grief, they'd still be at the Trinity. You have to get back to work. I think she gets to it by the end of this episode, a place where she can get on her horse and continue to live her life or start living her life again in all of the ways. But I don't think that that doesn't mean that she's also not still still processing his death and still grieving his death. And, and we're going to hear Ennis's name again. It, this, I don't think this is like, you know, Colton's here now, so we don't talk about Ennis anymore. That would be a disservice to the character and to the process of grieving. I, I think that's a whole separate thing than saying she has to reach a point where she can get back to work by the end of this episode. It was smart to have Colton be a friend of Ennis and have that connection so that there's some amount of respect and, and actual sympathy and compassion from, from Colton right away. That was a smart move, and I think Wade's respect setting the tone for how we're going to handle this with Elsa. We're not going to, we're not going to tease her. We're not going to push her. We're not going to act rude or, or anything around her. I, I think that's everything. You know, she's got this really great support system around her. Right. And I think the fact that Colton knew Ennis allows, whether we see it on screen or not, there will be campfires watching over the herd where she and Wade and Colton will tell stories about Ennis. She'll get to know him deeper than she even did by Colton having had a connection to Ennis as well as Wade. And that will help her. And she'll know him better and be even more connected to him that way. So it is a smart move. Just before we move on from there, just the idea of out here, there's no place to chain love to vow and ceremonies. You know how I am about ceremonies and rituals and traditions. Mm. And this idea that it, this is just such an unmoored, unhinged, uncivilized place we are was such a good image for like a wildfire love just burns through us so fast here it's not anchored deeply into stodgy church ritual and 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 other things it's just love is animalistic out here just like our urges just like our impulses you know and i, I thought that was a really a kind of evocative image to have it's part of this wild spirit and this journey spirit that she and james and and have taken their whole family on it's it's the right feeling I think for her to have at this point of not only her mourning and grief but also her coming of age. Though a very quiet episode I think was so important because it really moved forward her maturing process. That's a nice book ending comment to her lack of ceremony for the funeral too. We don't have to rely on these rites and rituals in order to get through life you know neither on the side of, of, of marriages and you know, elaborate wedding ceremonies, but also elaborate funeral, you know, rites. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be there in order for you to truly feel all the emotions that both of those things would have had. I could see that in other things too, like the birth of a baby or other things that are going to come in the show I'm positive of where there's just not this big old thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's just you have the baby and everybody goes back to work. You know? Which has its pluses you and know? minuses. I it mean, does. When, when you're just rolling through life constantly and just dealing with things as they come up, it's hard to stop and take stock. Certainly, it's impossible, I think, to appreciate in the moment what something, the significance of something, right? It's just you're always going from one thing to another because there's no ritual or tradition to say, no, now we stop and we do this and this is how we process. 
We swim on horseback now. We are out in the world. We don't have time to stop and have elaborate funeral ceremonies. We bury a shallow ditch. We put rocks on top of it. We put a cross there so someone can maybe find it another day. And then we have to move on. Life is much more fleeting, which makes it maybe feel even more important. There's a, there's a thing at the end of Harry Potter where he's going to meet Voldemort. Don't say that name. I, I, well, I, I do. <laughs> I, don't live in, I don't live in fear of Voldemort like Dumbledore and Harry. You know, I say his name. So he's going there and he has this, there's this great line that he says, Now as I go to die, my heart is beating so loud like I've never heard it before. Knowing the end was coming made him aware of the pulsing of his heart in a way, of, of every breath he was taking, of every beat his heart was making. Life became magnified because he was reaching the end of it. It's kind of the same out here. There's no time to stop and wallow in your emotions, good or bad. And so you're feeling everything in a very heightened way. Does that make sense? Yeah, like maybe there's not even a need to stop and have these these moments where, you know, you go from zero to nine and how you're feeling because you're walking around at a nine. Right. You know, and, all and of it, life is a nine. Right. And it's also how you can maybe justify falling so deeply in love with someone in less than three weeks and how you can get back on your horse and get back to work and watch over the herd and joke and laugh and smile even while you're still in pain because you're rolling at a nine for the good and the bad in all ways. I so, like that. That seems right. You mentioned Wade. You mentioned the respect he gives her. I really like Wade. He's this, just this of the recurring cast members and the and the and the series regulars. He is definitely the least paid attention to, but he's so goddamn wise every time he kind of opens his mouth. And he has this great idea when she comes back after the initial pulling the gun on Fun and Man, and James sends her back to camp. She rides up to him, and they, you know, how was it? it? Wasn't worth it. And he's like, it never is. And he has this great comment about all a cowboy and cowboy cowgirl needs. Stars for a blanket. Down from bed. Good horse. Open country. That's all a cowboy needs. Guess that's all a cowgirl needs, too. I liked it not only because I thought it was good information for Elsa to have, and, and just this statement of what a cowboy is at this time, but because he's including her in that group, he's saying, you are a cowgirl now. You, you are not a child. You are not a little girl. You are not a farmer's daughter. You are a goddamn cowgirl, and I respect you. I see you, and I respect you. That's, I think that's huge. Not being treated like a wallflower. Not being treated like a, like a little girl who has to be afraid of having shot a man. Wade isn't peddling the same thing James is peddling. Wade is saying, you did what you had to do. You are a grown-ass adult, and you took care of it, and you are a cowgirl. And now you see all we need is the things we have around us. Do you think that we are overlooking Wade too much in terms of how sort of slow burn, quiet he's been in the background? In terms of, we've never once said, maybe Wade is the father of a future Dutton baby with Elsa. Guy's best friend stepping in, you know, and, and becoming someone who you talk about him with continue to keep his memory alive isn't crazy yeah i mean at this point it would seem if that happens it seems like it's much more a relationship out of 
mutual like and respect than lust or emotion. Wade seems pretty much just into his horse in the open sky. Well, companionship, though. Companionship, right. It's 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 people in their 70s who get married for the first time <laughs> kind of thing. You're like, you are Come my companion. Come on now. Yeah. Maybe, you know, they could have spicy love in their 70s. Having gone through so much together, are, for we, sure. are we being too quick to sideline I think I think we're. I think the, everyone watching the show is being too quick to overlook Wade across the board as a possible companion for Elsa for sure but just I think in the importance he plays he's is the most capable cowboy on this drive of James of Shay of Thomas Ooh, I think I think whoa, you're I, saying he's more capable than James yeah and I think Wade Wade is the best just straight cowboy maybe not the most world knowledgeable maybe not the most knows how to deal with family dynamics and drama but just straight cowboy in I think Wade is the most capable on the on the drive right now. I feel like we've had several episodes where we've pointed to Wade and been like, "Yeah, we're not paying attention enough to this guy, but he's he's got some wisdom he's dropping here." He might be the tortoise. He might be the tortoise. I think maybe slow and steady wins the race here in this case and and I don't know. I better open my eyes. I got I, some of these people are in my periphery. I'm not giving them enough credit right now. Yeah, but he's there and he's being so consistent. He's being so consistent. That's what I, one of the things I like about Wade. He's being so consistent in being capable and having his his eyes forward on the job in front of him. He's not getting that distracted. That is the tortoise. Yeah, he's not getting distracted by drama. He's not getting distracted by by Rita Wilson in the camp. Yeah. You know, he's just he's he knows what he wants from life. He knows what his job is, and he's just doing it and he's just taking care of his business and not involving himself in anyone else's really like it i really like this wade character the way it's unfolding i hope the show keeps slow burning him because it's so enjoyable when you get to you know pay attention to him even the idea of margaret saying to him what can i get you from camp you know you're not gonna you have to stay with a herd and all he wants is a chocolate bar this is a man of very simple means. He's not, I mean, yes, I'm sure chocolate bars were hard to come by, but that's like the height of, he's not saying get me a woman. He's not saying get me a Good jug Lord. of, jug of triple X hooch. He's just like, I would just really like a chocolate bar. And goddamn knows I could also just go for a chocolate <laughs> bar. Well, let's talk about Jones Crossing and the people that we meet there and all the adventures that we have, because I was happy to see Rita Wilson join the cast this week. Man, Carolyn was cool, and she is someone I would want to hang out with. We are also covering This Is Us over on Pod Clubhouse, and there's an episode recently where Rebecca, as an older woman, finally has an opportunity to sit down with a woman of her peer group. And it's one of the few times within that show that we actually see her have a conversation about what it's like to be a woman in the world right now and what's going on and just kind of have that sort of back and forth. Same, we don't get that here, you know, for Margaret. We don't don't have that opportunity for her to be like just sitting back and being like life is hard right this fucking sucks this is not what i signed on for and this whole thing is like a lot more the back and forth the joking yes they're drinking and i think that that's hilarious and funny but i think they would have had a great conversation even if it was tea I think honestly they were having a great conversation I yeah, mean, yeah i love them and i thought rita wilson was a huge breath of fresh air and again an opportunity to see a side of margaret that's what i love so much in the this is us episode you got to see a side of a character who has been surrounded by men. You don't get a chance to see them as a friend, as talking to someone of their own age group. You only see them as a mother 
or dealing with men, but not right. ever dealing with these other women. And we need that. I'm, I'm hoping Noemi at some point maybe could, could provide a little bit of conversation for her. But good Lord, besides that, we've got very little other, maybe Risa at some point. Alina, the Italian pants maker. Maybe, but man, Rita Wilson. Oh, thank goodness that they recognized the need to have Margaret show another facet of her personality. Right. We've only had the one time that Margaret was anything other than a mother or a wife in this show. And that was when she went with her daughter to ride the cattle, to, to herd the cattle. And that was, that was an important episode because that was the episode where Elsa sees her mother as a woman for the first time and says, and this woman is, you know, magnificent. It was a lot of fun just to watch her with Carolyn, the lady of the hooch, I was calling her, you know, just laugh and, and just relax and not have to be worried. Right. When James comes and finds her purse and puts all of her stuff together, there's something about when you get to go drink with your friends, your peer group versus even just drinking with your husband around the campfire. Or, oh, for you know, sure, yeah. You know, you get to you get to have experiences that you're and 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 take it in in a way that you're not when you're with your your significant other. And finally, not have to be the responsible one. I mean, I was right. laughing at all the little small details, like when James and Shay have to go find her, and James walks over and puts his hand on the horse, like as if to see like how long has she been here. Right. It's, it's like thinking the, the warm is the engine warm on the horse. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like I was like laughing. I was like, that's so funny. But, you know, it was a much-needed comic relief in a, in a difficult episode. You know, certainly last episode was hard. So I was glad to have the laughter and just the letting her hair down, showing, showing another side of herself. I think it was a great use of a guest star. And, and, man, good to know that there's, like, stores like this, you know? What did you think about Thomas heading over to the store and actually making some purchases? Well, I love that they use Don's Crossing because, and we'll have more information up on this on our Facebook group, but Don's Crossing was actually a real place that sprung up just south of the Red River. And for a couple of years, it was the place that you crossed with cattle. It, it became a trading post. I liked when Carolyn, Rita Wilson's character, was talking to, and they were already pretty drunk at this point, 10 years ago, there was nothing here. Now next year, we're getting to school, you know? It was very <laughs> funny, but also was true. I mean, they ended up having a post office. It became a hub of life in this area for for years while the cattle drive industry was still booming from texas into kansas uh and into oklahoma don't crossing was the place there were other places you could cross the red river but don't crossing became one of the major hub areas so i like that they again the show smartly brought in this historically accurate place and gave us interaction with people that aren't just our normal group right it's always fun when you get an injection of new people you talked about thomas i like thomas i liked how awkward and shy and how concerned he was for trying to make her happy i don't know that that mirror was worth 50 dollars. that seems extravagant but i did like his reasoning of if i look the way you look i would want to stare at myself as many as often as i could that's a very smooth cute little boy way of saying like i think you're very pretty this was a huge moment in noemi and thomas's relationship we were definitely hitting a huge milestone and i want to think that the mirror while not worth 50 dollars monetarily going back to our rites and rituals i think that it was more marking this time for them Every time she sees that mirror, she's going to remember when they first, you know, got together intimately. But then also they they decided that they were going to stop with the mams and the, all that business. And they were going to really form a life together. And and to me, that's what the mirror was. It, it really wasn't about this extravagant present. It was about marking this important moment. This is a present 
Yes, it is. You won't marry me. You won't love me. You'll buy me gifts. You're sad. I'm scared. Yeah, I've got every right to be. I can give you something that makes you happy and protects you. Don't see the crime in it. You want me happy? Of course I do. You want me to feel safe? Yes, ma'am. That's love. Me letting you take care of me is not fear. It's loving you back. Naomi brings up a super good question. What is love? And is she allowing Thomas in her life because she's scared to be without him or because she truly wants him to be the one sitting next to her? What do you think? I like the idea of love is you want me to be safe. You want to protect me. You want to take care of me and me letting you and me wanting to do the same back to you and also letting you take care of me that way because it's vulnerability it's opening yourself up it's not just you know when we first met, met noemi remember she's she's throwing herself at shay i could be your wife you know she's terrified she is scared when we first meet noemi because she doesn't know what she's going to do to keep her and her kids alive after her husband is killed this Noemi has has evolved, and she she's not scared anymore. I love when she comes up to him and says, "I'm not the scared one. You're the scared one," you know, because he's shaking like a little leaf, like like a like a leaf on a tree, and he's so shy and he doesn't know where to look. He's terrified of letting himself be a, a vulnerable and emotional. And though there's this extra element that we cannot overlook, because 100% there are going to be listeners to this podcast and watchers of the show who are going to say. Well, historically, a black man being with a woman who is white has its own potential problems here. We can't ignore that. We can't say, well, why would he be scared? He's just scared because he's just overwhelmed with love. Well, no, he might be scared because five minutes later, she might scream that this man attacked me, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, there's historical precedence for that. So, I mean, you can understand why he is really taking a gigantic risk more than just normal, putting your heart on the line, being vulnerable. Race is an issue and he has brought it up. You know, it's something that I think the show is is not beating anyone over the head with at this point. But I think it's fair to remember, you know, why he would be hesitant. Well, it's a conversation they had back in episode four. It was this clip, which again was the last time we had a really significant Thomas and Noemi conversation about love and being together and what society says we can and cannot do. Man, black man ain't going to solve your problems, man. It's going to create a whole bunch of new ones. This is free country. Yeah. His degrees are free, ma'am. What does that mean? Government can tell me who to love? The government says you can't swim. Can't protect yourself. Damn right the government can tell you who to love. And how to love them. They shouldn't. But they can. Men have no idea what women want. Can't argue that. You know why? 
because they never ask. What do you want? I want to watch you eat. I like that these two are aware of the challenges that the world is going to present to them. And I like that Thomas is being cautious. He's being cautious with his own heart. He's being cautious with her heart and, and, and protecting. Now it's interesting whether or not he has become too territorial at this point. Maybe I think the, the $50 present, the uh, saying I'll, I mean, she had to shotgun. She was prepared to go sell stuff. And I understand why he did it for her. But again, at this point, these two were supposed to, him and Shay were supposed to be switching off, right? Well, you know, keeping after her. That has clearly been abandoned. He is, before they even, you know, are intimate for the first time at, in this episode, he has already kind of staked his territory at Noemi's camp. He's eaten her stew, almost relying on her making her him dinner, right? She come, When he comes back with the money and the mirror, you know, the first thing is, you know, there's dinner there for you. And he it doesn't even say anything. doesn't even give her the mirror right away. He sits down. He's like, well, I am hungry and sits and eats kind of thing. First time he's watching the kids in the morning, the morning after he's given the kids breakfast and he's eating breakfast at her camp, you know, and when she says no more ma'am, that whole conversation, he was already living this life of them being together. But it, I think it took her holding a mirror up to him, if I can, you know, use the mirror to make him realize that we've already moved into love territory. We just haven't had that conversation yet. I like that. I think that that's, that's a great summation of where they're at. And, you know, in terms of it being territorial, I mean, you and I had a conversation outside of this podcast in terms of just, was that in her best interest for him to be the one to go and handle everything for her? I was feeling a little uncomfortable that it was like, you know, his initial goal with her was to help her find her own footing and that she could be independent. She could learn to farm. She could do this on her own, not to rely on him. And so I felt a little bit off about him taking her stuff and saying, well, I'll just go handle it. I, I definitely looked at you and was like, uh, I really feel like she should learn how to do the trades and, and all that stuff. I was glad that they balanced it by showing that, well, in the meantime, she learned how to be a more capable hunter. She learned how to use the gun. She was able to kill a rattlesnake. She was able to kill a rabbit. That's huge strides for Noemi. It really, for anyone, really. I mean, for right, but her particular, the, way, her they family, the way they introduce sure. her just a handful of episodes ago, right? We're not, we're not five seasons into the show. We're just six episodes into the show. So just going back four episodes, she couldn't have possibly taken a shotgun and gotten taken down a rabbit, killed a rattlesnake, cleaned it. So, you know, and, and cooked it up. That was not skills that she possessed just a handful of episodes ago. This journey has been good for her in learning how to live on the range. Thomas being there and being a support for her, and, and working together as a team. All right. You know, she didn't say, okay, well, while you're doing that, I'm going to go rustle us up some lunch. I'm going to go hunt and kill and catch game and, and make lunch. But they're still working as a team. Before they have the conversation about how they are in love, they are already working as a team. All right, honey, I'm going to go into town. I'll sell your stuff or your dead husband's stuff. I'll get some money. I'm going to buy you a present. She's like, okay, I'm going to make lunch. I'll take care of the kids. Like, they're already working together as a unit. It just comes before they actually have the conversation about how they are together. Yeah, the problem with that is just that Thomas was like, you don't need to rely on a man. Mm -hmm. You can do this on your own. So right. I get it that, yeah, they're working as a partnership, but the goal was you don't right. need a partner. You can be independent. If the episode had just ended with him doing it for her and saying, oh, no, 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 I'll take care of that for you, I would have had a much more problem with it. I think the episode in total, though, 
made me feel okay with how it played out because it did present itself more as she wasn't just idle like sitting or twiddling her thumbs well, I can't wait till my man comes back and right and, and it would have been she, sad right she was doing that. stuff right she was being productive and she was she was taking care of the home fires uh, which is something necessary right no one else is doing it right Shay wasn't going to come hunt rabbit and rattlesnake for her and make stew for her and Thomas right she needed to go do stuff and she did and so they worked together as a team even though we didn't get to see that we learned about it afterwards that oh in fact oh man they really are working together so yes you needed the back end of the episode I think to balance it out you know we talked a little bit about James and Elsa and James and Margaret when you you know checking the horse engine you know and the warmth for it but in huge veritas as I was saying in this episode you know, he's not terribly pleased and he's a little, he's a little annoyed that Margaret is kicking back and letting her, her hair loose. Uh, man, she has that scene where she tries to stand up and she falls over. Mm-hmm. So funny. But, but then, you know, at some point you have to get back on your horse and ride back to camp. And uh, let's play this clip because this is where Margaret, still drunk, just starting to get her hangover feeling. She really lets loose on James. <sighs> Wherever we're going, it better be paradise. Because it's costing us a daughter. If you ask me, it's a shitty trait. We ain't trading nothing. She killed a man! And she was about to kill another. I look in her eyes. The person staring back at me, I don't recognize it. I will never forgive you for this. You don't forgive me? I don't forgive me. Ouch, man. I mean, we talked about last week about Risa and Margaret having these moments of what did you get me into? You know, what is this? What is this place? (laughs) Right. Uh, There's no time when you're more honest than when you've had a little bit to drink and you're like, you know what? (laughs) And another thing. If I was still writing written recaps of shows, uh, like I used to do a pop culture review, I definitely would have called this one in Hooch Veritas because... Because you're never more honest than when your tongue is loosened from alcohol, for good or bad. And a little bit just feels like, whatever. Like, what have I got to lose, you know? I'm not going to remember this, probably. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to say anything I want to say. But is it fair, though? Is is it fair to put this all on James? Because his response to her is, you don't forgive me, I don't forgive me. So he's clearly carrying around the guilt that we already talked a little bit about in this episode. But is it fair that she's putting all of this on him? That what happened to Elsa, that they're losing their daughter to grief and to the country? Like, that seems to be putting a lot on Gene. It was his big plan, man. No, it's not fair in terms of, like, did she did she agree? But I think she would say, in the words of Claire, like, it's laughable to think she had a choice. You know, once James had the decision that he wanted them to go do this... It's laughable to think that Margaret had any other option but to do what she was going to do with him. So to go along with the with the plan. So I don't see. To me, fairness doesn't come into play here. It's not. Is it fair? How James of you? It's not about justice and fairness. Ha ha ha! It's just for me. It's just. It. She just needs to get it out. She needs to say, "This is what is on my heart. I am so angry at you. I'm just so angry at you right now for putting us in this position." I think it's always a good moment when whomever you're saying something like that to can turn around and say, I'm angry too. I am so mad at how this is turning out as well. And that, I mean, God, I feel like that's a whole like COVID mantra. Like right now as we're all talking about things, you know, there's something so cathartic about this conversation where they just both have to say it out loud. Like, 
I am angry at how this is turning out and this better be all worth it. And James of anyone, I mean, God, if you're the leader, if you're the one who said, I have a plan and everyone says, okay, let's follow your plan. There was no one in that group who wants that plan to work out more than the one who started the ball rolling. You know, James wants this to work out. And, you know, he's invested in his plan, if you will. And I think it's more than though, than just the fact that this is overall his plan. I think what Margaret, I think she's, yes, she's talking about that. And she's expressed doubt and anger before. Remember uh, the nighttime crossing at the first river at the Trinity uh, that they did. And she, she goes to him and says, this better be worth it. You know, you did not explain how hard this was going to be. And he says, you know, I said it was going to take everything that we were to do this. And she said, you know, you should have better explained what everything meant. Margaret has had these reservations. We talked about this going all the way back to like episode one and two with when Claire was telling her, this is not a dream. This is a nightmare. Margaret's response in her face to Claire telling her all that was, yeah, Margaret kind of agreed with her sister. She has reservations and yet she is still here. I think it goes beyond even that in this particular case, because remember it was James encouraging Elsa to become a cowboy. It was James saying she's going to keep watching the herd and riding. It was James who signed off on her being with Ennis in a, in a way, even though I think maybe you could put the okay to have sex part on Margaret and that abysmal sex talk in the, in the lake or in the river. Um, you know, so James is carrying even more specific guilt with respect to Elsa and the heartbreak and grief and sadness that she's going through now. And I like the fact that he turned around because again, you don't ever see that on TV. You never see, especially the male character turn around. You're pissed at me. I'm pissed at me. You know, you never really get that. So I give the show a lot of credit because I do think that's a real response and an honest response. Just not one that we get a lot on television. All of that being said, that's a lot to keep putting on James. All the way to Montana, you know, not that they know they're going to wind up in, in Montana, but all the way through this trip, every single bad thing that happens, it's too much to keep putting on James. We're going to be seven months into this trip and something bad is going to happen and Margaret and or James or someone's going to turn around and be like, this is your fucking fault. We're here. Yeah. Like at some point it has to be shared responsibility. It's too much. It's too much to put on him going forward all the time. What do you think then about the conversation of him not apologizing for saying, I need to drive this wagon across? It's not about your skills, you know, and you can be mad at me, but I still need to do this thing. It doesn't change the fact that this Red River is a difficult crossing and I should be the one to take the wagon across. Is he having the right attitude with her? Because she is initially, she's taking it as, I can drive a wagon. And he's saying, it's not about your skills as a wagon driver. It's that something much more worse can happen in this river, taking the wagon across versus riding a horse across. So it's nothing to do. I'm not criticizing your wagon driving skills. In this particular case, I still need to do this, even though you're mad at me. And I understand you're mad at me for everything else. I'm still not going to apologize or compromise your safety. Guys who are feeling like they're in the doghouse may just be like, okay, honey, you know, I don't want to piss you off anymore drive the wagon across no james is like i understand you're pissed at me and maybe you can be more pissed at me for this i still need to drag this wagon i need to drive this wagon across james has the ability to keep his eye on the prize you know beyond all the emotions and everything else that are going on and this is just an, another example of that where he can keep his head above water when it seems that shay or thomas or or any of the the immigrants which which really play such a small role in this episode you know, when they get bogged down in things, James seems to still be able to see, 
you know, the goal line and manages to, to just say, Hey, I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep on trucking exactly where I need to go and, and be mad at me if you want. Once we all get there, you know, maybe we can hash it out then, but until then it's, it's sheer survival. And you know, we're not gonna have a conversation about this. The end. And I think you have to have someone like that in the group who can just not get bogged down in who said what to the who now and who's feeling like what, you know, it's just gotta be like, no, we've got to survive. It's the Marty Bird in Ozark, right? It's the unswayed by emotion. It's I and the prize and the good and the bad and we can apportion blame later, but this still needs to get done in the meantime. Right, and there there is a a ticking time clock for all of this. We know winter is coming. We know that these people have to get to certain areas before the winter really comes down on them. This cannot be something where we just sit around and have like, you know, a therapy circle. It just can't. But at the same time, you still also need to think about safety, right? Which comes, it's a great segue to one of our favorite topics on this podcast is leadership and the struggle for leadership. And you have Thomas, Shay, and James at the river talking about what's the best way to cross this entire drive across the Red River. And James says, we have to drive ourselves the wagons across because we're going to lose too many of the immigrants if they do it. And then we have to ferry using the boats on the bank here, which was a thing that was set up at the Red River. Part of the Don'ts Crossing was they eventually set up a, like a full like kind of ferry service across the river. This is like the beginning version of that with the little rowboats. Yeah, that was fancy to call it a ferry service when it was really like two rowboats. I think it became more <laughs> robust later on. But for right now, anyway, yeah, this is a, a ferry with uh, air quotes. Right. But then you have you had this great conversation of of James, who knows that they have to press on, but also, what are we going to do? It, you know, it doesn't make sense. This is a this is a situation where we have to actually be cautious, or yeah. else we're going to continue to lose too many people. You know what I would have if I was a shopkeep? I would make rowboats, rowboats that somehow hooked easily onto your wagon, because mm. every single time you came to a, a crossing, you would take it off your wagon, so the weight of it would not be on your wagon. You ferry across all of your women and children and anyone who couldn't swim. And then just hooked it back on. That would be my job. I'd make a million. Well, I mean, maybe the idea is no, that I would be a millionaire. No, no, I'm saying, <laughs> but maybe maybe the right the right product is actually the wet. Ah, stop no, no. changing my product. No, no, but I'm 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 musing on it though. What if we could the wagon itself? kind of make it like an amphibious vehicle like a duck boat but please come on we're in 1883 i can't make a duck boat but i saw those rowboats those rowboats could have hooked onto a wagon they were so tiny that was doable man and to know that like rowboats and stuff like that once i saw that that existed like that i was like hold up a second we couldn't take one rowboat along with us in all of our wagons. We have all these wagons. We have room for cast iron stoves why, and pianos. Why didn't we just bring one rowboat with us? Just a little canoe. Anything would have done. A raft. Anything would have been okay to get the littlest, most vulnerable across, you know? Let's let's listen to why Shay actually is so upset at this conversation with the farmer, as Thomas loves to call James, circling back to this leadership question, and is Shay the better leader, or is that actually James? That's two days we don't have. We should be in Kansas by now. At some point, they got to learn to do things for themselves. The only thing they're going to learn crossing there is how to die. I don't think this is the place to try and teach them something, Captain. It's this to the Rockies. Then it's worse. If they can't cross a fucking river, how are they going to cross the mountains? Or the goddamn desert we go through first? Don't get mad. We ain't got to do what the farmers say. If you want to swim across the river, 
and we'll swim across the river. I'm mad because he's right. I have to say, Shay's constant, you know, they have to kind of figure out what to do at some point is it, it got a little bit grating on me in this conversation. I felt a little like, Shay, really? I mean, they we've had a lot of loss here. Everybody's trying. Everyone is growing. Everyone is changing. We've seen Joseph step up. We've seen that they're willing to, to all work together so much more. Like, are you really going to still feel this kind of aggressive towards them? And I feel like they've lost so many people. They They are down to the muscle. The group that's left are trying. They may not have the skills, but their spirit is willing. And I don't know what else you can ask from them. You can't grow skill sets overnight. All you can at some point have is a desire to do the best you can. And so crossing a desert, going up into the mountains, that's different than crossing water. That's just that's just grinning and bearing it. And I feel like this group that's left can grin and bear it. They still don't know how to drive a fucking wagon across the river. Though. Well, and let's like even be more serious. You can't just will yourself to know how to swim. You can't say, well, why don't you have enough willpower to just know how to swim and swim strong across this large river? Like, I mean, that's kind of a little ridiculous. I mean, if he was going down to the river with them daily and, and setting up some sort of swimming lesson classes and people weren't showing up, then I'd be like, all right, Shay, you are right to be pissed off because you have offered them skills and they are not learning, right? We've posted several times at our YMCA board right, there's for the kickboards pool. available to anyone who would like to come try and they're sitting over here playing music and horsing around, you know? We're going to teach you all how to swim. You That's gotta, not you, what's happening. You've got to go to our classes. Swimming's not a good one to learn on the job. So, As Thomas says. Yeah, and I, so I respect what they're saying. Like, come on, there's literally rowboats here and but, you're going to say, no, we're going to put these people in the water and they're gonna sink or swim like but come on now. the larger question here though is leadership though even thomas says I, I was a little disappointed in thomas here because he's right when he says i don't think this is the place to make a point he's or agreeing a lesson with me that you can't force someone to know how to swim but then but then immediately because shay gets upset and thomas always wants to diffuse the situation when it comes to shay says we don't gotta listen to the farmer if you want to swim across, that's what we'll do. And then Shay has to admit, again, this is not the first time Shay has admitted he's mad because James is right. We have to resolve this. You can't, we can't have this conversation all the way to Oregon. We're literally just leaving Texas now. We're in episode six of ten of season one. We're just finally leaving our first state. There's like five more states we have to get through. Just yeah. to be fair, Texas is very big. For sure. But we still have to go through Oklahoma and the Indian territories. We still have to get, we haven't gotten to Kansas yet. We still have to get to the South Pass, down into Salt Lake City, west of Oregon. There's a lot of trip left. We have to resolve this leadership thing. We can't keep having squabbles over, I'm mad because he's right. Or I'm mad because these immigrants don't know how to swim. Right. We've covered that ground. Right. We've explained they can't swim because it was against the law. Not because they were just not being good, right. diligent, preparedness, you know, little people. No, this isn't what happened. They weren't allowed to learn to swim. No, I think I think some of this, and maybe even a lot of this, is Shay's just frustration at the situation. So it may not actually all be anger at the immigrants like why don't you know how to swim well we've covered why we don't know how to swim but more just continuing frustration at the thing why why are you so obstinate to just not swim when i say swim right that's more like it right. you know it's like what are you talking about i don't know how uh, but i think we all have experiences in our life though where we understand on a rational level why a thing can't be and yet still gnash our teeth and beat our breast and scream at the sky about why it's not so. But that person doesn't tend to be the one that gets to lead the group. That right. person tends to be the one who everyone rolls their eyes out and says, 
Really? Well, it asks the question, though. Is is Shay actually long to continue leading this group? I think no. I mean, I think I think that James has been the de facto leader this entire time, but I'm still okay with this idea of, like, a council of leaders. I'm okay that sure. Shay has a skill set, Thomas has a skill set, James and, brings something to the table, as does Joseph, right. that everybody should be listened to and should be considered in, in what their expertise is. There were literal lines here that were verbatim from like episode one where I was like, for real, we're going to go back to like, you know, if they're going to survive, they better learn. I was like, we're too far into this. And you've got to know some of these individual people, like their names, their family, their children by now. You're still like, too bad for you, Laura. You don't know how to swim, die. Like, right. Come on. I mean, haven't you like, there's no amount of knowing who everyone is anymore. Yeah. So I, but I think this is going to be a continuing thing, which has to get resolved. And I'll be thankful when it is resolved. It's interesting. You mentioned Joseph. We have Joseph finally stepping up to a leadership role at the, by the end of the last episode where him and Riza kind of act as bandit bait or Comanchero bait. As we learned, they were, they were actually Comancheros, which will put some information up on what, what those guys were. You know, they were entrepreneur bandits, kind of, essentially, as it turns out. Aren't um, all bandits entrepreneurs? I guess. Well, I think some people just shoot and kill because they like to shoot and kill. No, um, they, all, they all have hopes and dreams, Mike. But, uh, you know, but then, and, and you have Riza, you know, what is this place? Where are you taking me? And then we didn't have them in this episode at all. So I would like to see, I, I hope we get back to them in episode seven and the fallout from that experience. You finally have Joseph stepping up to the mic as a leader, and then you have them putting him and his wife in this harrowing position where are they because they also had their own trauma at the end of episode five and the you know the cliffhanger the mid-season cliffhanger so I, i'd definitely hopefully next week we get back to them but there was one more new face that we met this week we get james jordan joining the show as cookie well the cook uh, I'm curious if the eagle-eyed viewers of Yellowstone recognized him. I have watched Yellowstone through and through, and I did not recognize him. So I was surprised when you brought it to my attention who this guy was. James Jordan, the guy playing Cookie the Cook here with his big beard and his his cheery disposition and his giant cleaver, uh, had made his name kind of playing uh, livestock agent Steve Hendon in Yellowstone. I think eleven episodes I saw. He was he was Steve. We all know we all know Steve, the livestock agent from Yellowstone. That beard was just so good to hide so his good. face yeah his I beard was absolutely mesmerized the by beard, that beard the, the cook belly and uh, his giant cleaver yeah definitely held it up but he also uh had a recurring role as ed or has a recurring role as ed on mayor of kingstown uh clearly taylor taylor sheridan likes james jordan so uh what did you think of of cookie the cook we needed him. I need him to come on board. We've got to get some sort of structure at camp and we need to have some sort of sense of like gather around. We all bring the food over here and everyone's sitting around. I think that's when we get some campfire moments because we haven't really gotten that. Everybody's just been sprinkled around. I think that's when leadership maybe can start to gel. So far when everybody's sprinkled all around everywhere, it's really hard. It's that old herding cats kind of mentality but if you finally are sitting around as a pack because the cook has actually made dinner for everyone that camaraderie that bonding that happens over a meal is huge and and beyond that of course the safety the security i really did not have enough of a sense of the job of the cook beyond preparing the meals 
actually securing the food, making sure that the food is acceptable to eat and all that kind of stuff, but but just making sure no one steals it or right. does anything. Like, there's this element of security and, that and I did not think about. I mean, I mean, I mean you, how many people spend Sunday nights, you know, doing, uh, you know, putting out their food for the week? That's the cook's right. job here, right? He's, he's a meal prepper. He's a meal prepper on top right. on top of being a, a you know security. He's got he, his bento boxes out for right. everybody. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm right. I was like, you know, he, the you know, this is my Tuesday. It's my larger exactly. Tupperware. I have a protein, and, right. and everyone has a snack. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's an important job. And this guy, you said it, and I think you're 100 percent right. You guessed his name was Cookie. I even think that's before, what it's called on every Western. Right, but uh, we, we get to the credits. I was like, did she look at the credits? She <laughs> no. saw that his name was Cookie. They are never called but, anything else but Cookie. But he looks the, with the beard and the belly and all of it, and then the demeanor. He looks right out of Central Casting from You've, every Western for for being a, a trail cook. You've got to be some combination of like bouncer, right? Uh, of like a really kind of pissy chef, right? You know? Oh, did you? You had to love the mom rules that he said. Oh for. yeah, yeah. What I what I cook, you're gonna eat it. That kind of stuff. Yeah, that cracked me up. I was like, this they is can complain, but they gotta do it to someone else. So I, I'm like, Love it. Love all that business. And, and, you know, wanting to stock up and being so smart that he knows that he needs to get the stuff now because he's not fooling around dealing with Abilene or, or any other place. And we get a little bit of world building that there's no more stores. There's no more game past Kansas. Like, good to know. Like, okay, this is it. This really is it. Thank God they got this guy though. And he's on board. He says $600 and Thomas, you know, says, why $600? Like they had no, they have no concept for what it takes to the stock I to get from here to Wyoming. What is up with that? I mean, I, mean, I know you've said this since day one, but like, why don't they know that? Right. But this is why James put it as a condition. If you want me to kick in my rations, then you best get a cook. And now we've got Cookie the Cook. I'm happy so, for this. I think that this yeah. is going to bring a whole other element. I think it's actually going to create some community that this group badly needs. And you're right. We have absolutely cut all the fat. There's nobody around here that doesn't want to truly make it, that isn't got that survival instinct. These are all the people who are who are like our core group now. And I think that they're going to be great when we get them around the campfire and you've got Cookie doing his biz, you know, stirring up his pots and stuff. I think there's going to be some great moments coming. An important episode, again, coming off of the very sad and and climactic, you know, Death of Ennis in episode five. Again, episode six, a quiet episode, not not a lot happening. This was, as far as notes go, I think the shortest amount of notes I had as far as an outline, but also really important. I think this is this is setting up the back end of the season. The introduction of Colton as the new cowboy. Elsa moving on and continuing to process her grief, but still having to go forward and do her job and, and continue to see the world with color again. The introduction of Cookie the Cook and what that means for stability in the group. Getting past the Red River, I don't think we're actually going to see the Red River crossing. I think the next episode's going to, my guess is the episode picks up with it having been done and them now dealing with the Indian territory of Oklahoma. I think that's probably where we go to next because we didn't need to see another river crossing. We've already gone through that. So I think we're going to, we're going to start pushing ground in the final three episodes, four episodes of the season, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah, four episodes of the season. Yes. We're all very sad. We all miss Ennis, but the the show has to go on. This group has to go on. We have to get past this last river, leave Texas. Finally, like we're finally officially out of Texas, you know, six episodes in, this sets forward the rest of the season, if not the series. An important episode. 
I'm very much looking forward to the back half of this season one. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1883 episodes. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, but particularly at Apple or Spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star rating, we would really appreciate it. Because you know what? We want you to leave a rating and leave the hating to us. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.